This is live from the table, recorded at the world famous Comedy Cellar, coming at you on Sirius XM 99. Rada! And on the <laughs> Laugh Button Podcast Network, this is Dan Natterman with me, Perry Alashenbrand. She is our producer and and she's also does on air work with us. That evolved, um, you know, uh, as things do. Noam Dorman is coming at us once again. From Westchester, you can run, but you cannot hide. Noam Dorman stricken with COVID-19. <laughs> After two years wearing the, the most uh, the most effective masks, being careful, I guess we could add COVID to death and taxes as an inevitability in life. Noam? Why do they call it COVID-19? Why, why is it up to COVID-22? Because it came out in 2019. Believe but the variants are so dissimilar. Maybe they should feel. They would just call well, it. This is not a car company, Noam. This is <laughs> epidemiology. Well, but there, there was a disease that everybody got and died from, and now there's a disease that we treat really serious, but nobody's dying from it. It's like we should put a different name. Maybe people would not be so scared of it. Well, but who's scared of it, uh, Noam? Uh, uh, how do you feel? I feel, I feel okay. Yeah. Well, you you were vaxxed, you know, um, and boosted. Excuse me, I think I lost. Boosted backs, everything. So, um, it's no, my glad. wife's fault. It's like a lot of things in my life because the whole the whole family had COVID, and I didn't get it for three weeks. I moved from my wife to my son to my other to my daughter to the other son to the daughter to the nanny. And um, at some point, four out of five of them had COVID. So my daughter says, "Mommy, how come Daddy? You know, why do we all have to be locked in our rooms? How come Daddy can't just lock in a room and we can run around the house like normal?" So one of you said, oh, that's a good idea, Mila. But it wasn't a good idea because they're all running around the house with no masks on everywhere. Because I come down to go to the bathroom or to eat something and I'm walking through a COVID fog. And I finally got Well, COVID. I don't know if it necessarily transmits through surfaces. Mainly, I think it transmits person to person from. No, but they leave, they leave it in the air. I mean, it's just all these kids with COVID. Right. But you should have gotten out of the house and you had the opportunity to get out of the house and you turned it down. I had a soft fall. I got I I'd gone so long without catching it with despite you got cocky. So, you got cocky. Yeah, I got cocky. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> let's uh, let's um, move on to our uh, guests. We have two guests, but the I, first... I should I should have remembered that cockiness, you know, from my STDs. But anyway, <laughs> uh, our first guest tonight, Mike Feeney, a uh, a relatively new. They keep coming, right? I mean, uh <laughs> And somehow I'm still hanging on. They haven't gotten rid of me yet. But anyway, he's new at the comedy. Oh, Dan, I think that part about getting rid of you, make a mental note. I want to talk to you about that. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> Mike Feeney, everybody. Hi, everyone. Hi. He sounds like John Mulaney. He is not John Mulaney. Yes, without the success. <laughs> the stand-up special, Rage Against the Routine. Yeah, that's a good name. And that's on uh, YouTube. Yes. That's what everybody's doing nowadays. Fuck the gatekeepers. Yes. Especially. Fuck Netflix. They're going right to the people. And many have had success with it. Yeah. No guarantee, but many. And how is it doing? It's great. I, I don't want to it... hear about your success. <laughs> <laughs> is you getting a lot of hits? A lot of hits. Uh, I know that uh, Joe List also has one out on YouTube and, you know, and 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 comics are very good about plugging uh, other comics on YouTube. Yeah, once it started, because it used to be like an embarrassment to be like, oh, my specials on YouTube. But now once everybody's doing it now, it seems people like to share others and stuff like that. So it's very nice. Of Comedians it. can be generous with their uh, with their uh, It's kind of like going out with Pete Davidson. <laughs> <laughs> I have a theory, though, that people only share it 
be like comics share it still out of a selfishness because they're like, I'm, I'm promoting it because I want them to restory it and then put it on their well, that story. May, well, look, we can argue whether a true I, altruism exists and philosophers have argued that for centuries. Who Is does anything? What's that? Who does anything except for that reason? Yeah, I mean, you could argue that there's always a, a, a selfish reason behind any act of charity, but maybe not. Maybe true altruism is, exists. Here's the scenario of the podcast on Twitch. You think you think you think a woman performs oral sex on you because she she has nothing coming in return? Oh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Well, either she enjoys it or she was once quid pro quo. Uh, Mike Feeney <laughs> is a New York City based comedian featured on these. these the, you, know, you don't have to read the whole bio. You know, uh, Peria likes me and to uh, do along. But the, no, 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 no. Peria right. likes to send you things so that you can be acquainted with what's going on. Anyway, well, listen, Dan, can I talk about the replacing you thing? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so I was looking at the um, before I guess I was looking at the Stan's website tonight and and um, stand up New York. First of all, I, I, I can only imagine how many poor customers get those two clubs confused. On basis. <laughs> anyway, um, it's mess- like there's a comedy seller and the comics seller. Like anyway, um, uh, so but anyway, there's a lot of comedians working at this club that I don't I don't know. I mean, a lot like most of them. You, at the like, stand, be, you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And so, so used to be there was like a big overlap, but somehow over time it's kind of morphed. Like like except for like a few people like Ari Shafir, like those guys. Um, they have their own crew over there working there and, and people working here. So I told Liz and Esty, I want to make a spreadsheet of every single name of people working at the stand. And then I, I want to go through every single one of them and figure out, you know, who, who's, um, who should be working at the cellar. But it could be a lot, Dan. I just want to warn you. Well, <laughs> I, you know, I'm trying it's to. Zero sum, the zero sum game. I am trying to stay Stay uh, funny and 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 doing the best I can. But if it's time to go, it's time to go. Mike um, Fe- Mike Feeney um, is 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 part of this new crop that we're talking about. Mike, uh, who do you know that works at the stand that we should be using at the cellar? Who, who's your know, the first person you think of? Uh, I, I don't know who the, who the overlap is, though. I would have to look at like the website. I know they have a lot of their guys, but I think a lot of them work here, don't they? Like Monroe Martin and like Derek Gaines. And uh, I'm trying to think. Yeah, those guys work here. Uh, um, yeah, weren't you going to open another club? I'm, I'm trying to, but I haven't, I haven't been able to pull it off by another club. He means another room under the same under the comedy cellar umbrella. Yeah, just to be slightly more precise. There goes that ching ching again. Oh, for the love of God. And it was God. perfectly timed because we're talking about opening up another. another club. <laughs> That's Gnome's phone makes a ching ching sound. Oh, but it always, seemed, doing it always seems to ching ching at like exactly the right moment. Like Lenny and Squiggy used to always like just, you know, they'd say that. They'd come into the, if you remember Laverne and Shirley. Shirley so, Feeney. So do you know who these names are? Ted Jones. Are you Ted, reading Ted Jones, I knew he's a, he's a, he's newer, but he, he produces shows there. Yeah. Danielle, Janine, uh, Casey Balsham. Now Casey Balsham is right. fucking hilarious and should absolutely be working here. Right. And, uh, her husband, Robbie Slowick, is very funny, too, who's also a comic who writes on Jon Stewart. Robbie's amazing. Yeah, both of those people would be my two L, L, L or Ellie Orlando. I don't know. L. Um, uh, yeah, she's she's newer, too, but she's uh, she's working hard. Around but the so city. far, we're working hard. All right. But, but so far, Casey Balsham is um is a keeper. Casey and Robbie. Balsham. Robbie's great. Yeah, I don't and, know if Robbie works at the stand, but he is uh, he is very funny. Both of them are very funny. Robbie's done my show before. He's hilarious. Yeah. And um, Karen Feehan, 
Yep. She's, she's been doing coming while she, she hosts a lot of their shows there and stuff like that. She's been working the stand for, uh, forever. I, I got to get on this. We, 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 we can't afford to have these people working in town. I don't even know who they are. That's, that's some, I'm, I got to get back on my game. Okay. Um, so anyways, that's it then. So, so, you know, we'll try, we're trying to try to hold on to, I mean, you know, we, we have a soft spot. <laughs> in our heart for you. Well, you might be doing me a favor. If you let me go, I might light a fire under my ass or at least motivate me to get into pharmaceutical sales. <laughs> At least it's a, a lucrative business from what I understand. Mike, can you tell us a little bit about your association with John Mulaney and how that is plaguing you? <laughs> well, we we have we're both skinny white guys or so tall and married or at least now I still am. But uh, we uh, we both have a similar voice, which is unfortunate for me, not so much for him. I don't think he's ever got a you sound like Mike Feeney, um, but. <laughs> I have run into him in Brooklyn and he was very amicable, a nice guy. And uh, he, you know, he was nice enough to not address that we have a very similar voice. So, yeah, my my plague is trying to uh, not be compared to him. the problem is on like social media, on things like TikTok or Instagram and stuff. People will hear a bit and be like, I think this is like I because the people will hear just a sound on TikTok sometimes and they go, I thought this was John Mulaney, which is fine because it's like, whatever. I understand it's not a specific. But then some people will be like, this is stolen. This is a John Mulaney joke. And I have to like individually write because some people you can ignore, but then you have to write to these people and be like, listen, I know we sound a lot of like, this is not him. This is actually me. And then, then they're like, oh, every single one has been like, ah, oh, my bad. But it's just so funny how in the world of social media, people just throw out the what is the worst accusation for right, comedy right, sure. with comedians, which is like thief, you know, and then. But um, but yeah, but that's that's my uh, cross to bear. But do you think it might burn? But That's do you think it might be a positive thing? And people say, you know, we're looking for a, a John Mulaney type. Yeah, I did one time. I did a show, um, this great show, Hot Tub in, in Los Angeles that um, uh, is run by Kurt Braunhauer and uh, Kristen. Goddamn, why am I blanking on her name? She does the voice in Bob's Burgers and in... Kristen Wig? No, not... Kristen Shaw. Shaw, that's right. Kristen Shaw. And she told me, she was like, I did the show. I did very well. And she goes, you can come back anytime you want, because we always want to get Mulaney. And we can't get him. So you'd be an easy replacement, <laughs> which which is, you know, it's fun. It's like a nice little joke. And then she actually had messaged me the next day, which is so funny because she's pretty successful. So she messaged me the next day and was like, hey, I was thinking about it. I'm sorry about the Mulaney thing. That was shitty. And it's just it was very nice of her to see that it's like even in, when you get higher up in comedy, people still get that neurotic like, ah, why did I say that to that kid for, you know, and then message me. But um, yeah, so that so to that end, I guess it helped. Well, uh, no, you, have you seen Mike's uh, on stage? I have not seen his act. No, I, no, I haven't seen his act. Well, he's obviously he's a strong comic. Asked he passed him, but um, I predict good things for Mike Feeney. He's young, he's handsome in a non-threatening way. I think Nicole, <laughs> Nicole would agree. Way to describe it in a non-masculine but not not toxically so. He's not toxically yes. so. Um, and 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 he does the job on stage, but that's a given, you know, um, if you're working here, I guess. But but um, well. what, what <laughs> you're saying, it's not a given. It's not, sometimes it's not. Um, so are you 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 you're you're uh, this is a uh, this might sound like a cliched podcast question. Then then I'm going to let Noam. I, I'm sure Noam has some things. he no, probably Dan, Right. Go ahead. You talk to I have COVID. I'm, 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 I'm hanging by a thread. Go ahead. Okay, but I assume your your um, ambition in this business is to have a John Mulaney like career, to be in front of the camera, oh, my acting God. and stand. If I could, if I said to you, you can only 
do acting, but you'll be a big movie star. I asked this question to uh, what's it? Harrison Greenbaum. No, no. I asked him a similar question. But the other night I asked this question to Ariel Elias. Mm -hmm. I'll ask it to you. You can be a movie star, but never do stand up. You'll be a movie star. You'll be making millions of dollars. You'll be a movie star. In fact, I'll even let you write the movies. Mm -hmm. These are these are it's a it's a it's a Mike Feeney joint. Sure. Okay, as Spike Lee would say. But you're not doing stand up ever again. Or you can be a stand up and you'll make a living. You'll eat out a living. All right. You'll pay your rent. You have a decent house. Yeah. You make a couple hundred grand a year. Tops. A couple hundred grand a year is pretty. But 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 that's it. <laughs> yeah. and, and you'll be working <laughs> and you'll be working the funny bone and you'll be like, you know, in, in Pittsburgh in a hotel. Yeah. Here's the thing. The the life of stand up comedy is a very lonely one, especially on the road. I mean, it's miserable. I mean, I don't I don't really <laughs> like the idea. Like, I'm not I'm not a strong actor. Like I can do like comedic stuff, but I'm not like. I don't want to be an actor. I would love to do more like directing and writing and then put myself in a small scene. If I ever got to do the like happy Madison thing or like what Seth Rogen does, where it's like him and his very funny friends write a movie and then they all are in it together or a show or something like that. That to me seems like the absolute dream because you're with the funniest people on the planet and you're all making something together. So you, you would take that over the funny bone. Over the over the over the Hartford funny bone, I'd probably. But you're making a decent living and you're doing your yeah. stand up. I mean, listen, a decent living, a, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year is more than a decent living to me. That sounds like a, a great living. But or I give you the, the directing, writing and you can give yourself a cameo and you're a star, but you'll never do stand up again. So you're taking the. Writing. That's like the it's almost like an Adam Sandler, right? Where it's like he doesn't or uh, he doesn't do stand up anymore, but he was, uh, you know, he got to. I mean, he shoots every movie in Hawaii now. He's oh, just, so which one are you taking? Well, um, or I give you two million and you're out completely. No, that I don't want, because that's just going to be that's going to make me feel terrible about myself in a matter of six months. You know, I'll just go, what am I doing? What do I, I need the money. I don't need the money. You know, it's just going to be I think, uh, you know, it's it's hard. I really want to do both. That's my you see, I, I these young comics. The Ariel Elias said she would take the stand up. I said, are you are you had your goddamn mind. I think that. But here's the thing. I think. It used to be like you get into stand up and then you do Montreal and then you get a sitcom and then you can get in movies. Now it's like get famous and then you can do stand up right. because now you have an audience. What I don't want is to be in my like late 40s selling half filled rooms in the Midwest by myself. But enough about Dan that. <laughs> Because that's that's uh, that's pretty brutal. Um, if, only, but, if only I were in my 40s. Yeah, but it's <laughs> but it is, you know, it is what it is like. It, I, I was it, a bit it, passive aggressive, I would say. <laughs> look, he's so young, he doesn't even realize what he's saying at his age. He doesn't like it's like I was at that age. I would like, you know, to me, if you were. Yeah, if you were in your 40s, you're fucking old. Well, and it's I mean, you know, that's, you got to face it, because when I started comedy like it, it's different for you and for people that have been doing it like a lot longer than me like Bobby Kelly and all this and stuff like you you guys started at a time when like the landscape was so different when I started it was still like the internet being famous on the internet wasn't a thing it was still like get on Letterman get on Conan get it to Montreal and since I started it all shifted which is kind of crazy because the rug got kind of pulled while I was trying to catch my footing meanwhile comics who start now it's just like to start a YouTube Start a do a do a reels and a TikTok a day and then do a podcast. And that's how you get famous versus. But the problem with those people is they're not funny enough. I can't imagine the hell that I had multiple like videos of me doing stand up in my first seven years. If that was on the Internet anywhere, I'd want I'd want to kill myself. I mean, that would be so brutal. But now there's like there's kids who've been doing comedy six months that have Instagram clips up, but nobody's laughing. But it looks good because it's shot in 4K and they're standing in front of a crowd and. 
you know, people you, you put up your clips on Instagram like everybody else. Yeah. yeah. And is it working for you in terms of getting a following? It did. Yeah. And especially on like TikTok, I was like one of the big like pushers of TikTok back in like 2020. Everybody made fun of me, but I I got I came to Twitter too late. I came to Instagram too late. So now I'm like, I'm an early adopter. I got on everything right away. Worst case scenario, it flames out like Vine did or Periscope or any of these other things. But or Periel or Periel. You know how to dance the renegade? What was that? You know how to dance the renegade? That was a big TikTok dance. Renegade. Oh, no. Yeah. See, I've never done any of the dances. I've just posted my stand up clips on there because I saw a huge need that there was only like two or three, only two or three people that I knew that were on TikTok posting stand up clips and they would do great. And I go, oh, my God, why aren't I posting this on there? So I started posting all the stuff from Rage Against the Routine and they started going viral. Like some of them had like eight million views, wow. 4 million views. And I got up to about three hundred and. 30,000 followers on wow. there, which then started moving over to my Instagram. And at the same time, it was a weird try like trifecta where it was that. And then I had another viral video um, happen that got on Barstool and then COVID happened. So all at the same time, people were suddenly indoors with nothing to do but watch videos. So all of that kind of came out um, at a perfect time. But then I got banned from TikTok for six months. And now, why? Because I, we made a comedy sketch and in the sketch, we showed a literal flash frame as a as a joke of Osama bin Laden, not even doing anything. It was just a picture of him. And they said that I was uh, promoting terrorist organizations. No way. So they first they they suspended me for six months, but you're allowed to appeal it. So I appealed the suspension and then they said, you know what? Now you're banned. And then they banned me. And I was like, how do you make the punishment worse than the original, you know, than the original punishment? But then after two weeks, they emailed me and go, we reviewed your banning and we've decided we're just going to give you a six month suspension. Do you want to appeal that? And I was like, no, not again. And so now uh, I just came back onto it in like October. But my views are like one fiftieth of what they were before. That is so insane. Can you believe that they ban you for six months for showing a picture of Osama bin Laden. I don't I don't know if he's used to working at the comedy cellar. <laughs> what did he say? What did you say? I don't know. I mean, I'm no bin Laden fan. Maybe we had enough of this guy, Feeney. <laughs> yeah. And I want to say it wasn't a pro bin Laden thing. It was more just a, it was the funniest thing to put in the series of height. Still, it was inappropriate. Yeah. yeah. Why? Why? And you'll never why, was it, why was it inappropriate? I don't get it. I'm, I'm just following up on your guess. <laughs> I know what but who if, cares? No, but what? I'm asking, like, well, why did they is there a rule that you're not allowed to use bin Laden's visage? I, again, they they said it they were their exact line was promoting terrorist organizations or groups. That was it. And then so, they, so like if you put like Hitler up with that, put Hitler up, you're you're done. Any sort of yeah. maybe Netanyahu. Right. <laughs> yeah, any of these people. Saddam Hussein, you're done. But I don't know if you caught it, uh no, Mike said he was married. Now, what I do you that. think I about know that? We spoke about that, yeah. Do you think he's too young? He should have held out for, you know, for the Hollywood uh, vagina parade that might be coming his way. Yeah, but I would say that to any man of any age. But yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I was never a guy. My parents are divorced. I, I never assumed I would ever get married. And then, uh, you know, I met a woman in college. And next thing I know, it's been like 15 years. So it just it happened faster than I could have uh, imagined. But also, if it wasn't for her, I would still be wearing like extra large black band t-shirts and giant jeans that don't fit me. And uh, it would be, I don't know if I'd even be doing comedy. She was the one, she was at my first comedy show. She was very much like, Aww. she's the biggest supporter and pushes me to do it. And what does she do? She works at NYU actually. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you, you found a good one. Yeah. Uh, 
I have some friends who got married young and they're all very happy still. At least they, they say they're still happy. Uh, they Do you think the they're not? No, I think they are. Actually, I think, all I think of my not. friends who got married in their 20s are by and large divorced. Well, here's here's my thing. We why? I, uh, why? Of course, because my friends would be different than yours. Like, like you have flighty. Fr- I, I know. I really, know really. <laughs> what kind of fucking friends do I have? My people are more settled and more like oh. um, wholesome and more like grounded. <sighs> They're grounded. They're people who, who are grounded. You Your know what? I are- know your friends. Remember that. What? What? Oh, will yeah. you delve into this? Um... You, you're not. You're not scaring me by saying you know my friends. <laughs> and um, they're just like you know they're just more grounded. They're more traditional. And your friends, you know, are like, you know, doing threesomes and foursomes. And it's like, you know, I, it's different. I, I'm not surprised that your friends are divorced. I'm just not surprised. I'm, I'm going to refrain from responding for that out of respect for your wife. No, if you had to do it no, all none over. Of my fr- none of my friends have written a book like the only Bush I trust is my own and, and on my knees. Like that's not, that's not <laughs> the way my friends are. That's, that's your that's your click. You I'm know. sorry that my books are um, scandalous to you. Well, that, no, they're, no, they're great. I'm look, Picasso was married. I mean, like, I mean, like you're, you're from a different milieu and, and, um, uh, you know, your, 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 your milieu is important to the world too. It's like takes, takes, takes a village. No, you're sort of from that milieu. You were a musician, are a musician. You, uh, you know, uh, you, you certainly, uh, dabbled, uh, you know, in the, in the, uh, in the, uh, Delights of the flesh that come with musicianship as a yeah, I got I got married later than, than my friends did, but even I'm even I'm more traditional than Perry oh Ellis. God, this is well, such a crock of shit. Are you buying any of this? How long have you been with Juanita? Twenty-seven years. Okay, do we need wow. to go through like your escapades and just abominable behavior? I'm that my sound is a little. Uh, Cutting, uh, Nicole, are you hearing that the crackling? It might be your headphones. It's, it's your headphones. Okay, first of all, you know, that's what men are. Okay, let's just oh, be honest. Oh, okay, now the whole thing changes. Now it's that's what men are. My behavior is not abominable. My behavior is top really? five. Where were you on September 11th, Noam? I, I was I was mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C. having With who? With what? Uh, Don't uh, interrupt listen. him. Let him finish the story. <laughs> My behavior is not abominable. My behavior is probably top five or 10% of good behavior for men. That's just the way it is. Men, men are men. All right. And, and we're not, we're nothing to be proud of, but that's, it's, you know, I don't know. Like I, I know people have been listening to this and say, oh, he's such an asshole, but I know how men talk privately. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty well grounded. I would say. I, uh, I waited a long time, even though we were together a long time, I waited a long time to get, married because uh i just i don't know there's a part of me that was like maybe i'll maybe we'll break up someday and then i'll be like i was still there is that man element like to what you're saying of like holding that in the back of your head like maybe maybe this won't work out and i'll be single in new york city but then every single time it just becomes a grass is greener situation and then when i got to be 27 or something i I was like what am i what am i like what leaving her besides you know an immediate six month like instant gratification of just doing that around new york city what is out like the person i'm going to be looking for is going to be someone like her like someone who's supportive who's nice who's got a good fan like all of the things she would check all the boxes i think i was just you know i was just kind of holding out you know i wanted to ask you something before our next guest i, I think here. i think as i said before i think you're undervaluing that six months of instant gratification <laughs> <laughs> you know what i'll call her tonight it's over you, 
you talked yourself into like, ah, it's just six months of the most awesome time of marriage. Oh, no, but if you could go <laughs> back over again, do you think you just get married earlier, or do you in, do do you uh, think you did the right thing by uh, by playing playing around a little bit? Um, I, I should have got married earlier. I because I because I should have started a family earlier. Um, you know, you, you can't have your cake and eat it too. That's just the way it is. So, but here's here's my. This is how I know I didn't miss out on like be, because all of my friends at the time were single, and the dating apps had just come out like literally seven months into our relationship. So I I missed all of online dating, and my friends were all like, "This is the best." We're like my buddies. Like I slept with seventy women this year. Like they were just, but then within a matter of months, they were the loneliest, saddest people. Like my buddy, who is the most alpha dude you've ever met was just like, I just want someone to lay in bed with. I mean, that's literally a sentence that he told me. So I'm like, oh, OK. So after a while, no one has never said that. <laughs> no, I have, I have said that. But the truth is, the, like the mobsters, like the Sopranos guys, they have it the most sensibly. Like they have their, they have their family. I mean, I'm not saying you can pull this off anymore, but and then they and then they fill their knees on the side. And that's that was kind of an accepted um, arrangement, even in like Periel uh, as support of that relationship. They have that in France. And as long as the French do it, Periel thinks it's you know the, the classiest thing in the world. <laughs> Literally, she'll she'll live the, in France. Like so, what Periel? But but she has a, she's a Franco file. So they they do that in France. They let the men uh, have mistresses. Well, and the women. It's not just the men. It's not all about just the men. But it always leads to something emotional every single time. It'll lead no matter. Well, it, I mean, it's yeah, like yeah. every movie, every TV show, every mistress eventually gets jealous, or the or the wife gets jealous. It always always converges at some point where then they go, I'm leaving my wife for you. And then he doesn't. It's it's Mad Men. It's Goodfellas. Yeah. It's it's, uh, it's the Sopranos. It's everything. Well, it is possible that human beings are not meant to be monogamous, that we're not actually monogamous creatures. Although I would like to say that for all of what Noam is saying, if Juanita is further than five feet away from him at any given time, he's like, where's Juanita? Yeah. So, you know, it's like it's nice. I, to I love my wife. Did I say anything to indicate I don't love my wife? Okay. No, yes. you didn't. I, I you... guess I guess it's Joyce. I love my wife yes. very much. We've been uh, married four years. We've been dating, though, a total of 14 years, which is I know I had to make sure. And um, <laughs> she's great. I mean, if I'm being honest, she's one of my favorite people right now. And um, <laughs> here's the thing, when you tell people that you've been in a relationship that long, a lot of times from men, it's met with pity. Which is unfortunate. You know, a lot of men will be like, ah, 14 years, Jesus Christ, the sex must have gotten so stale by now, right? And I'm like, no, sex hasn't gotten stale, it's gotten efficient. That's where we're at. <laughs> you know, like our sex life is like a Billy Joel concert at this point. We are just, yeah, we're just fucking playing the hits, no new shit, everybody's happy. Like, that's how we're, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you're never gonna go to a Billy Joel concert. He's gonna be like, this is off my next, you're like, B -b 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 piano man, get to it right now, hurry. <laughs> Know what you want, you know? It's great. And we don't have to do that thing that new couples have to do, which is like after sex, you gotta like build up each other's confidence, you know? We are well past that at this point. The last time my wife and I texted the first words out of her mouth, we got done, she just went, good stuff, and walked out of the room. So, so I'm no longer in a marriage, I'm just on a lacrosse team with my wife. That's what that is, just, hey, good stuff out there, let's hit the shower. All right, well, let me do the introduction because uh, that's sort of my thing, Mike. Oh, yeah. I'm the introduction guy. And you probably you did a great job. Well, you probably noticed that I do uh, have a, a certain knack for it. Mm -hmm. 
Ryder Kessler, which is a great name. Ryder Kessler. That is an awesome name. Ryder Kessler. Thank you. Is that Ryder with a Y or with an I? R Y E R like Winona. Like like Winona, but also like in Paw Patrol. Like in Paw Patrol, yes. The Generation Alpha. Is there still a company like a U-Haul company was called Ryder? Yeah, the trucking company. That's with an I, right? (laughs) Ryder Kessler, a lifelong downtown Manhattanite and working families party endorsed candidate for New York State Assembly in the 66th district founder and CEO of Dipjar, which is a startup whose technology helps low wage Low wage service workers and nonprofit organizations collect credit card tips and donations. Thank you, Ryder Kessler, for joining us. Uh, just let me introduce you to everybody here. If you don't know, this is Periel Ashenbrand. Hi. She's our producer, but you'll notice she's more than a producer. She is also chimes in. <laughs> she yaps. Yeah, you know, um, I don't Clearly like, the, a very word. Welcome I don't like the word yap because it has a sexist connotation. <laughs> Noam Dorman is the owner of the Comedy Cellar. Hi there. <laughs> He's also a fine musician, and normally on Monday nights, he plays downstairs with the band, but he has COVID, so he can't come. Mm. But you'll be happy to know his symptoms are mild. And Mike Beanie, he is an up-and-coming comedian. My money is on him. You never know in this business, and no one likes to think he can predict, but he can't. But if I had to put money on anybody, uh, it would be Mike Feeney. Wow. Thank you. Wow, Dan. But like I said, he fits all the criteria. So, you know, it is. I think I think I'm a little unfocused with the COVID, but um, Mr. Can I call you Ryder or Mr. Kessler? Of course you can call him Ryder. He's He's half your age, for God's sake. (laughs) Mr. Kessler, um, you you had written something, but it's a long time ago already about these all these um, these shacks, these these uh, satellite restaurants that have sprung up on the sidewalks in New York City. Yeah, I wrote about outdoor dining back before I announced my campaign. Yeah. So and that's why I, I wanted to have you on, because, you know, we have outdoor dining and uh, you were supporting you were supportive of it. Big supporter, which is um, so unlike any kind of community minded. I used to be on the community board. The, the community the community minded people are generally so anti business. So, you know, such killjoys, really. Um, <laughs> so I was like, oh, my God, this guy's awesome. He's, he's in favor of the dining. So tell us about it. Why, why are you in favor of these outdoor dinings? Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks for asking. And to give a little context for folks who maybe aren't as familiar with community boards, is that is it okay if I provide that uh, sure. context? Maybe your viewers, listeners know all about your community board service and experience, but you know the community boards are all volunteer appointed boards uh, around the city. There are fifty of them, uh, fifty nine of them rather. <laughs> um, and our board, Community Board Two, covers Canal to Fourteenth Street from the West Side to the Bowery. Um, And yeah, boards like this are volunteers and they make uh, advisory uh, opinions about land use, about how we should use the streets, um, and they weigh in on zoning, things like that. And they are generally older, wealthier, whiter, and not really representative of the full community. So I was appointed to my community board, CB2, uh, three years ago, and I was one of very few people under the age of 50. Um, And, you know, so it was important to me to represent what I think is a broader sensibility. And that really came to a head around outdoor dining. So, you know, this program that started during COVID to allow restaurants to have broader access to uh, sidewalk cafes and to open structures in the roadbed where parking spaces usually are, was absolutely critical to saving restaurants. 95% of restaurants surveyed said this saved their businesses and 90% of them say continuing to be able to offer outdoor dining is critical to their economic um, success going forward. It helped save 100,000 service jobs in the city, and it allowed New Yorkers 
uh, who live here to eat and drink outside safely during COVID. Um, and it was massively popular. There's a couple of different surveys, but they have found between a 78 and 84% approval of outdoor dining as a program amongst Manhattanites. So successful on so many metrics. It's made the streetscape vibrant. It's helped restaurants. It's helped the people they employ. It's helped New Yorkers. Um, Parking well, is the is the downside. And that is the thing that I think- well, Not for him, he, like, he wants to get rid of cars. Right, so I think mm -hmm. for the folks who are frustrated by it, there are some, you know, there are many kind of sensible concerns that have been raised about the lack of uniformity and the aesthetics and the structural integrity and some are not as nice looking as others. Uh, and there should be some standardization, but I think the folks who are militantly opposed to say, under no circumstances can we have outdoor dining continue. And I would note one of those people is the incumbent assembly member who I'm challenging, who is a militant opponent of outdoor dining. I think for them, the parking spaces are a really big issue. So um, let, let me let me, uh, let me double advocate. And by the way, sure. I said that about a community board, but there were many, many people on the community board when I was on CB2 that were, um, I, I, were, were heroes in my mind, very, very reasonable. Yeah. And, uh, and I but, do not but, mean to impugn my colleagues who are lovely people and all acting in good faith to support but, the community. But in the overall, they were... You know, they they it, they were people who moved to Greenwich Village when they were younger, and and when they were younger, and even today, but especially when they were younger, Greenwich Village was the most famous nightlife district on planet Earth. Literally, I'm not, that's not that's not hyperbole. It was a cynic doke for 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 nightlife, right? There's no no need to use that word. I actually <laughs> I was almost a <laughs> literature professor before I was a tech entrepreneur, so I really I appreciate synecdoche, synecdoche. Yeah. So, that's Thank it. you for correcting yourself before I had to correct you. I'll be good. No, I mean, there, was, was, there was a joke about that going on. Maybe it was, maybe it was on the other podcast where, where uh, I, I corrected somebody. They said cynic. Um, so anyway, so uh, uh, and then they got a little bit older and they'd forgotten the choice that they made to move into a kind of rambunctious neighborhood, you know. And then I thought that was quite unfair. And then they then they wanted to reshape the neighborhood in terms of the, the, the lifestyle, which was which was comfortable for them now that they've gotten older. Mm -hmm. And that rubbed me the wrong way. And, and it was like really ironic. I remember being on the community board when Ken Burns had that jazz fest, that jazz documentary. And they all wanted to end the meeting to go home and watch this Ken Burns jazz documentary. <laughs> and I'm like, do you guys understand that everything you're going home to see are in clubs exactly that the clubs that you're opposing in Greenwich Village right now overcrowded like everything you guys are here to stop yep. you, you have such admiration for as part of American culture mm -hmm. and this is where it happens to happen in Greenwich Village but um having said all that let me be devil's advocate um it, is it hasn't happened yet but it seems only a matter of time before one of these things go up, goes up in flames there's no sprinklers there's not even the requirement as I know it to have um uh fire extinguishers in them uh, who knows how the wiring electricity is done and all this stuff, fans, heaters, um, and people have their, their homes right next to these things. What do you say about that? Yeah. Before I respond to that, um, I want to pick up on something you said about the vibrancy of this neighborhood as being so core to its identity. You know, I just a few days ago was at a, uh, an event at Julius's, the bar on West 10th and Waverly, to commemorate the 56th anniversary of the Sip-In, which was, you know, this uh, really important moment in uh, the history of queer liberation. It was before the Stonewall riots. It was a bar, uh, the oldest gay bar in New York, where a few guys went in and they said, hey, we're gay and we, we want to drink. And there was an unofficial policy at the time where uh, any gathering of 
gay people was a public nuisance and so they would be refused service and sure enough at Julius's the bartender put his hand over the guy's drink and there's a very famous picture of that and he said no we can't serve you and this started a lot of coverage and it and it really got the queer rights movement going I say that as a gay man who was born in this district who grew up here who recognizes that our nightlife whether it's Julius's sipping or the Stonewall riots you know the vibrancy of this neighborhood is what has given it its identity as a place where marginalized folks can gather and seek liberation. So I really don't want that energy to go away. But yeah, sure. So let's talk about safety. And I think, you know, the folks who are engaged in good faith about the future of outdoor dining want to have conversations about safety and structural integrity and aesthetics and making sure that as we roll out the program permanently, um, we do so in a way where we acknowledge those potential pitfalls. But, you know, I think about what is the status quo alternative? The status quo alternative is 3 million free parking spaces which are equivalent to 12 central parks. That's how much space we give away to parking in New York. And so what if we continue to give away spaces to parking? We incentivize more driving and you know what's really dangerous? More driving. Last year was the deadliest year in terms of traffic fatalities of the quote unquote vision zero era, era that started in 2013 when we were gonna reduce traffic fatalities to fatalities zero. Fatalities in New York City? In New York City, yeah. We had almost 300 people die in traffic hmm. collisions. Um, in 2021 and we know that free parking spaces that allocating the space to parking induces more driving uh in amsterdam when they eliminated free parking in the city center car ownership went down by 30 percent you know and i don't so, want to just be right. a lecture about statistics but i think it's way safer to have a city so, where we so are let, using let, the space let, alternative. Let, let me tell you what i think and by the way of course of course i want to keep the outdoor dining like of course i do so, so but to be fair and i and i see this a lot this is a common thing that happens because your particular lifestyle is not dependent on the automobile, you might be being a little, um, uh, um, I don't know, might, might be tossing it off a little bit um, insensitive. What's the word? Like not, not giving full empathy to people whose lifestyles sure. revolve around a, a middle-class life with a family. Maybe they're professionals. They need to go around town. They, maybe they work uh, air conditioning, you know, uh, various things they they don't or, or they're commuters and they they um they don't work near conveniently to grand central station or penn mm -hmm. station and yeah. this is, and they made life decisions based on a certain um uh assumption that they had that well this will be my life i'll drive here and there's parking in the neighborhood and i'll have my family and and i'll be able to work and and now the the the, the wool is the, the rug is pulled out from under them and um, that's not really fair, is it? It's, it's just not fair. I think that's a great point. And to me, I look at the big picture and I say, what is the, how are we balancing these different people's experiences? That person versus the person who needs to take the bus or the subway or bikes to get to their job or you know school or their doctor's appointment. Right now, we're very balanced towards- People cars. can't do even those things in the winter. You can't take your bike to work in the winter. I mean, you know. So, I mean, I think New York is very unique in being disproportionately designed for car usage, but a lot of other places have a lot more equitable allocation of street space. And I would note too that, you know, I think the story you're telling is real, but writ large in Manhattan, 20% of households own cars and car owning households have median income that is double that of car of households that don't own cars. So when we think so about, so, you know, the alternatives is more protected bike lanes, more dedicated busways. Yeah, but funding for but, transit. But aren't you subway. worried? I mean, New York depends very much on those people who earn. I New mean, York depends New York on has, everyone. Yeah. 
no, no. I would, no, I would no. assume no, New York doesn't depend on everybody. New York <laughs> spends a lot of money. New York has the highest uh, rate per capita of, of spending on students. New York has the highest rate per capita of health of any city of health outlays. I mean, and all this money has to come from somewhere. It's got to come from people who earn. And Mike had a point. I think he wanted to make. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah. Well, I'm in a unique position here because I would also say that I think that obviously there's a lot of like commuting in. There's all the tolls that they're getting and stuff. But I'm a person who lives in Queens, but uh, I drive in to my to do shows all around the city because the subway is so wildly unreliable, especially after I get done at night. I'd rather take out I'd rather drive and take the ride in than get a quick ride home instead of taking two hours and six trains to get home. But since they like when de Blasio, when they did the vision zero thing and it's like they reduced the speed limit to 25 miles an hour and then they put all the bike lanes in, taking out all the parking and then with adding this thing. So it's like now there's less parking for the same amount of cars. And then people are now circling more to look for spots, which is causing more congestion. It's also causing more pollution and it's becoming a nightmare. And then I keep hearing on the radio all of these Vision Zero initiative things where they keep saying, like, look, you got to look and make sure you don't hit anybody. Look both ways before you make a left turn. But if you ever drive in the city, you know that like people literally will like lunge out in between cars. People come out from the outdoor dining. They just go out. People aren't crossing at the crosswalks here. So it, it never it doesn't seem like there's ever a lot of like focus on pedestrians being like, guys, watch for moving cars because they will kill you. You know, it always seems to be a lot of like, you know, when Perry L asked me who I wanted to book tonight, I said, Mike Feeney. She said, why? Because he's a great comic. I said, are you kidding me? His views of vision zero. <laughs> <laughs> these are the conversations that are so in exciting to have about these competing, you know, preferences and the balance of the different values. And, you know, we I think the problem is structural. It can't be about individuals having to look out for everyone or, you know, not. I mean, I do think drivers should have to look out for everyone, sure, but also pedestrians should have to be responsible. But it's about how we structure the streets. And right now, you know, I think we have a hard time stepping back and assessing what we have because it's what we've had and it's hard to see a potential alternative. But we have 19,000 miles of lanes for cars and we have 545 miles of protected bike lanes. So we have we've made a decision. We make it every day to have a city. Design. You really know these uh, numbers. And, huh? and there are more you know, bikers in New York than there are drivers. So it's a, just a question of what's the optimal way. To and those bikers, the could, those bikers need their own set of rules because it feels like sometimes they're like, I'll I'll obey the traffic <laughs> laws. Other times they blow through it. I've or had, they're going the opposite way. The opposite always, way down a one way drives me crazy. Yeah. So and, I mean, what I'm going to do I'm about these people in the bike lanes that are riding their their uh, their mopeds and their motorcycles. Is this are, are we turning a blind eye now? Obviously, this is not the biggest issue in the world, but, <laughs> but uh, are they even getting ticketed? You know it seems like we've decided it's legal now to drive your motorcycle in the bike lane. I know it's crazy. The other thing is, I just want to say that I am a born and raised New Yorker. I grew up in Queens. Whatever argument people are making against this aesthetic thing of this outdoor dining. I mean, there are like. Millions of rats and garbage strewn across this city. Like th this is the least of our problems. I'm so glad you brought up the rats. I love Thank talking you. about rats because I think a lot of folks who don't like outdoor dining, which reminder, 80% approval, um, a lot of them say, 
well, what about the rats? They're attracting the rats. And I think that's just not borne out by the data. You know, I love data. Um, Rates of rat sightings increased way before COVID. There were cuts to the sanitation budget. And then during COVID, household waste doubled because we were all doing everything at home. And New York keeps doing this really unique thing. Do you want the, yeah, sorry. Uh, No, I, I think New York is the greatest city in the world, but we do this really singular thing where we pile garbage bags on the street so and disgusting. we just create this buffet we cut the sanitation budget so there's less frequent trash pickup we've created double the household waste and we're you know just letting the rats have this endless buffet would you rather yeah. go to your apartment looking for food i would <laughs> rather put the garbage bags in rat proof containers and that's something that a lot of other cities do they containerize their trash rather than having these you know mount garbage on every corner or buffet as you but don't the rats like i was reading about during the pandemic they said if the rats can't find food on the streets they'll go into your house (laughs) i think there's great evidence to suggest that if we containerize the trash and reduce that buffet that it actually will reduce the rat population well i don't know Ryder. i'll take your word for it there's 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 certain problems that just never get solved so listen you have my vote you have my vote right i mean i'd even i'd even be happy to do an event for you at the altria the cellar to to raise money for you, not because I expect to agree with you on everything, but just because I like your. Now, what's your slogan? I, I like your I like your vibe of being. Streets uh, are less wider with Ryder. <laughs> <laughs> no, I truly my slogan <laughs> is simple. New York is for everyone. New York I like is mine for better, but okay. people <laughs> who rent and can't afford to anymore. Not just homeowners. It's for people who use all modes of transportation. It's for people who are working class, not just wealthy. It's for people who like outdoor dining and like to complain. New York truly is so for people. Jews. Also. York, I mean, Can we work on the uh, making the park right over here? Not a full active war zone at all times, because I mean, there's that 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 park. Every time I go near it, it's just like I mean, there's a whole section that gets taken over almost like a tent city. It's like one of the few areas in New York City where it's almost like a tent city. You're talking about Washington, Washington Square, Square yeah. Park. Yeah. There's so much we could be doing. It frustrates me. I like I I'm enjoying this conversation, but I'm truly indignant with rage that we are not doing common sense things to help clean up the park, make it, make it vibrant for people who live around here and serve the folks who are struggling, who are vulnerable, who because of COVID have lost access to housing and mental health care and jobs and families. And we can be doing so much better um, and we're just not. And that yeah, is- Yeah, I agree. It's a, It really is scandalous what, what, what we've let happen. Here's, here's some words that rhyme with rider. A subdivider, <laughs> hang glider, hard cider. <laughs> Uh, uh, divider. There's a lot you can do with. There's a lot you can do with it. There's a lot. Beside her, it is a missed opportunity. And then Rider, I hardly know her. You can do that. There's, there's near rhymes. Yeah, like I've a, never heard that. An all nighter. <laughs> do an all nighter with Ryder. Oh, there you uh, go. Nice. Um, no, my modest proposal. I just want to ask. Well, a question, really. Do we want to continue with New York City politics or get into Twitter? which I think is something I, I, I like to discuss. And I'm sure Ryder has opinions about. Yeah, Twitter. I just wanted to say, we can wrap it up. I just want to say one thing about, so, so just to, to wrap it up. I Not think right, that I mean, it's, yeah, right, it's a I classic think. problem in politics where people have trouble uh, viewing, viewing things from the, through the eyes of other people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's true, for instance, that I'm sure you're right, that the average income of a family, of, of a person who drives a car is much higher. But I'm sure so are the average expenses because the people who have, uh, cars are most most likely to have bigger apartments, families, the expenses of families. They take vacations. They have to pay for school, books, blah, blah. You know, they they um they're not living the on easy street. As a matter of fact, they can be struggling every bit as hard as someone who makes half their income because their lifestyle. When you have a family, I mean, it costs you have to, health insurance alone for an entire family can be a couple thousand dollars a month. So 
you know, I, I, I think that just income is not a good measure of somebody's lifestyle. The, the people who are truly wealthy uh, or they don't park on the street, they park in, in parking garages. The people who are leaving their cars on the street are middle class for the most part, I think. Well, there's, there's a lot of snorers out there. They don't want to pay for parking, even they got money. <laughs> I always find free parking around here. Greatest city in the world to park after 7 p.m. before 8 a.m. I do think, yes, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that, you know, really the problem, what we need to focus on is making sure the billionaires and the wealthiest New Yorkers and corporations are paying their fair share. Because if we're just divided between working class and middle class, we're letting the legislature hand $600 million over to the owners of the bills to build a new stadium rather than, you know, a tax cut for middle class people or investments in, in programs that everyone can. Speaking of from. billionaires, can we do can we get to Twitter in our in our go ahead, Twitter, go, Twitter, go, go, go. Well, I just think it's fascinating uh, that uh, the whole notion, uh, you know, the whole question and we've addressed it before, but I'd like to address it again. I've been struggling all kind of week thinking is freedom of speech on Twitter the best thing or is it not? I mean, we, we all know that Twitter is not the government, so they, they can restrict speech as they want to is is it the best thing to do to allow unfettered uh speech I, I, you know for example i mean is there is there any value to a tweet that says the vaccine is bullshit is there a value to that tweet or is there a value is there a value to allowing people to tweet that especially people that are very influential i have zero data on this but i would think that if if I'm a person who's like the vaccine is bullshit and I try to tweet that and they delete my tweet and suppress it, that makes my convictions emboldened. Now I go, oh, see, they're trying to. And then you find like minded people who also are feeling like their voice is being suppressed because of a truth. I feel like that's how it creates those types of, you know, psychotic, far either right or left versions of people. Yeah, I think there's there's merit to that. I think. Um... Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it, Noam, do you have any thoughts? Well, I mean, they, they've gotten it. They've gotten it wrong, famously, a number of times already and things that they didn't allow to be said. Um, I think that anything that can be refuted factually ought to be left on Twitter. I mean, obviously, calling people ugly names and things like that, you know, is it, it would make would turn Twitter into a cesspool. But um, the fact that you couldn't discuss whether the the um, the, uh, vac the whether the, the virus leaked from a lab in China and that was called racist uh, by New York Times writers. No, I, I think we should learn a lesson from that and understand that once you put somebody in charge of censoring, they have to um, fulfill their their um, their portfolio and, and they find things to censor. You know, that's just the way it is. And we've learned this over and over movie boards, whatever it is. And uh, we have to trust um, people are not stupid. Like everybody on both sides, left and right, seems to think the other side is stupid. And I think we have to allow people to um, read and see things factually refuted. That's the only way. The, the alternative is, is not going to work. So that's, my, my, that's my opinion on it. I, I think that Musk would do well. I think too many people think that free speech is the, the real problem. But I think what's the real problem is the bubble, that people can create a Twitter world for themselves where they follow 50 people, all who feed them exactly the kind of things they think they agree with. And, then, mm -hmm. and they never hear an intelligent 
refutation. So I'm very, very pro-vaccine. But there certainly were people making good arguments about certain age groups and certain scenarios about the vaccines and as the things change with the vaccine. So, and people need to hear those things. So if there was a way that Musk could force people to see, if there was an algorithm to put certain things in front of people, which were like uh, intelligent refutations of what the algorithm interpreted their opinion to be, I think that would be good. Like we can tell you're, you're, you're very, very far left. So we're going we're gonna to put some intelligent right wingers in there into your feed, whether you like it or not. And so you can kind of see people, what people are saying on the other side. So people can be more reasoned. But yeah, I mean, I don't know, Dan. Of course, um, there's no perfect solution. Ryder, you have a, you have a. Well, I mean, I can take the pro content moderation position. Um, well, you can take a position that you believe in. I, it is the position I believe in. Okay. Um, you know, before I was running for office, I was doing democracy work, voter protection. So in the 2020 election and then the 2021 Georgia Senate runoffs, helping to make sure every voter who wanted to participate could register and vote and have their vote counted. And the disinformation and misinformation spreading on social media was a huge problem. And it's the kind of thing where it's it really undermines the idea that good facts, that that the right answers can can be a corrective against the bad information because the tweet that says, you know, they're throwing out all the ballots or this polling place is going to be closed or, you know, if you're whatever, you're not going to get counted. That gets retweeted 100,000 times. And then the correction that says, oh, actually, that was wrong. That polling place isn't closing gets, you know, eight likes and two retweets. And so I think, you know, the democracy work was a really powerful example of where we need platforms to intercede when bad information is either accidentally or deliberately being spread. And I think the same well, could be same case I, can, be made for vaccines. I would say, except that they were wrong about a lot of the stuff they spread about the vaccine. I mean, some of the vaccine skeptics turned out, to, I, I don't say it happily because, you know, you don't know me, but I was not uh, uh, um, one of them. But some of the vaccine skeptics turned out to be correct. But look, you're a gay man. And um, I would want you to uh, think, I would make the argument to you that content moderation, as it were, from most of history has been the enemy of oppressed groups. We live in a particular time right now where oppressed groups are really in the sunshine and, and they're the cause celeb now and content moderation would, would favor them and be on their side. But that's not a principle. From most of, not that long ago, things about gay marriage, things like this. The, the, look, look at what Florida's trying to do when they don't say gay. Yeah. This is this is content moderation. Well, no, I think that's where it's really important to draw the distinction between state sanctioned censorship and you know legislators using. No, it's not censorship. It's, no, it is. No, but I would disagree. It's not censorship because it's a school. It's, it's not free speech. The school, the schools don't have free speech. The schools have a curriculum, and the curriculum is decided. It's it's classic content moderation. And let me give you an example. I've used an example. So, so you know this. This is just a hypothetical. So you know that like trans is still gender dysphoria is still considered mental illness in the DSM, right? We know this. Um, imagine the school wants to start teaching that, and it's factually true. And we say, wait a second, we don't want you teaching that. And all of a sudden, you see everything flip, and we say, well, no, we need, we need, we can't have the school teaching this. We need content moderation. So, I would, I would say that I think that what's when you get down to a community. Uh, deciding what's taught in, in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade. This is very analogous in my mind.
to content moderation. It's not a free speech issue. Nobody wants to give a second grade teacher free speech to teach whatever they want. And um, it all, it's, it's fine when the content moderation goes your way, but it's very painful when it doesn't. And people can be very, very short-sighted with no eye on history or no eye on what could be if they make their, these decisions based on the status quo to them at that moment. That's what's really going on, in my opinion. I think we need to let people say, and we have to work on breaking down this bubble because they don't if they don't go in the bubble on twitter they'll leave twitter they'll go to reddit they'll go like you, you, you're not gonna you're not gonna fix it by by what do you did anything happen um after they censored uh like uh hunter biden's laptop did that really stop anything i mean you know they, they can't they can't censor ideas no i mean you i'm oh, sorry right did you have a response oh no i i just want to really draw a distinction between content moderation on social media, which is a very new problem. And the fact that, you know, when I see unfiltered, unmoderated content run rampant, it is not to the benefit of marginalized groups. It's a lot of hate and harassment and death threats and things that we should make a positive case for. Well, hate, happening. harassment and death threats, I think most people agree, certainly harassment and death threats, I think most people agree should be moderated. Yeah, I mean, those are things yeah, that don't even report those fall things, under right? the purview of the first. I think Amendment. this is what we're talking about is, you know, what well, on well, Twitter should be allowed to Right, stand. but then there's just wrong information. I think that's said, anything that can be refuted factually should be allowed on Twitter. Well, what if they do that thing like they did when the COVID-19, when you used to tweet about COVID-19, it would be like, hey, this is a COVID-19 tweet. Like, make sure you're looking at the right information. But like, it's kind of like a might be wrong, but we're not saying it is, but maybe look into this more kind of a thing, something like that. That's, yeah, I don't think the, there's anything wrong with that. Not the worst thing in the world. So, so Ryder, you know, like, just to give you an example, during the Gaza war with Israel, um, I tweeted out, or it was on Facebook, it, I just posted a, a tweet by Chuck Schumer from the, oh, the, the last war, was it 2017? I don't remember, 2015, the previous Gaza war. And it was taken down from Facebook as not meeting community standards. And it was, I had made no comment. All I did was repeat Chuck Schumer's tweet where he said there's no moral equivalency between Hamas and uh, Israel. This is how crazy it gets. And um, we, we, we were discussing that with Mike Pesky. He said it might have just been an algorithm bug. No, it wasn't an algorithm. And But even if it was an algorithm, we, we, can, we, we, we really should not be naive to the fact that we're putting people in charge of this stuff who are young and they have their own agendas. and this is proven in, in psychological experiments over and over and over again that people cannot rise above their biases. This was the whole genius of the Constitution that the founding fathers understood this. This is why we have a First Amendment. And um, if you don't think this stuff should be allowed on Twitter, um, I would ask you then, well, why shouldn't it be? Why shouldn't the government be able to? I mean, if it's really dangerous, why should we take half measures? Why not? Why not just make it illegal altogether? Why shouldn't we have? somebody in the government who says, no, no, you can't say that about the vaccine. I mean, that that would protect people, right? But we know, but we can't do that. It's a bad idea. We don't want to set up that structure. No? You know, at the risk of laboring the point, I just draw a distinction between a social media platform like Twitter and, and what is, you know, and making suggestions of the government banning content. I think it's just very different. And social media has engagement led algorithms that you know, drive the well, they, social media can do it. Dissemination of, of very harmful and no, wrong no. content. 
Social media certainly can do it, but but they also have the freedom not to do it. That's what I'm saying. Sure. Yeah. Twitter yeah, could yeah, okay. abso- absolutely Twitter has the freedom to decide not to do content moderation. Okay, that's that's fine. Yeah. And and I think that I think that Musk, I mean, I don't I don't know him, but I, I just have a feeling that he is going to try to hit a hit a sweeter spot on this. I don't think he's looking to turn Twitter into a garbage thing where people are just calling each other horrible names and and bullshitting. Um, I think he wants to improve it. You know, yeah, I don't I, see I it hope. becoming becoming like 4chan and one of those things or 8chan. But I do think that just as a general note, we as people should like be pro Elon Musk just in terms of like supporting him because I as this eccentric billionaire guy who likes flamethrowers, I think he's like three mean tweets away from becoming a James Bond villain. And if we could just keep him <laughs> on our good side, that would be he's turning into like Hank Scorpio from that episode of The Simpsons. But he's That's a uh, good yeah. reference. And it, 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 it's a, I mean, I think you were very young at the time that episode came out. Oh, I, I've, I've watched But you've all. seen. Well, I used yeah. to watch the Flintstones and that came up before my time. <laughs> no, AOC said on Twitter that she's worried that there will be an increase in hate crimes if Twitter becomes a sort of uncensored, um, is it possible that there could be an increase in hate crimes? And it, and in, even if it is possible, you have to weigh that against whatever benefits free speech on Twitter might bring. But it certainly is possible that speech can lead to hate crime. It is possible. And, and if there and if there was good data that showed that that's what was happening, I hope that whoever's in charge of Twitter would, would uh, tweak things to try to try to stop that. Now we should, we should just make the point that um, horrible hate crimes have existed on planet earth long before the internet. I mean, long before TV, long before movies, long before the printing press. So let's not pretend that hatred and bigotry and, and violent uh, bigotry are uh, functions of, the modern era. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. AOC said something else that I, I really liked recently. She, um, she voted against this law to seize the property of these uh, Russian um, oligarchs, uh, this, this seizure of assets thing. And she, she's 100% right. There, there's no due process. We don't even know that they did anything wrong. Um, asset forfeiture has been used against restaurant owners to the most horrible way. Um, and there was a, there was a whole... Um, uh, expose about it, where the it, it turned out you can Google it, it was in Washington Post, where it turned out that they knew they were seizing the assets of innocent restaurateurs, but they did it because it was low hanging fruit, so that to to make the money, and then they would the restaurateur would have to get a lawyer, and he'd get back like you know seventy cents on the dollar of of his entire life savings. So I mean I have no love for Russian oligarchs um, or Russians. Uh, who are involved in in anything wrong? But I don't know that a rich Russian is a if these if these guys are criminals. Why didn't they do this in in January? Like all of a sudden, have to seize every Russian yacht. So good for her for showing some interest in civil liberties. And she's and these these and she's right. These these laws have been used um, against uh, minorities too. They'll they'll decide that they're drug dealers and seize their property, and they never get the property back. It's crazy. It's un-American. So, Ryder, what else is on your agenda as assemblyman? What, 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 what are you going to fight for as assemblyman? I think the number one problem is the lack of affordability of rent in New York. We have the most expensive rental market in the country, um, and that's leading to record levels of displacement and homelessness. You know, we 
New York got as big as it ever has been. Uh, the 2020 census had us at 8.8 .8 million people, but between 2010 and 2020, we lost 4.5% of our black population. That's basically people being priced out of the city. So in other words, your slogan is less whiter with right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, last year, 100,000 New Yorkers spent a night in a homeless shelter and 30,000 of them were children. And, and we just have this one way ratchet of rents going up and up and up. And that is the core problem. It's underlying the street homelessness we see in Washington Square. And the are subway you are you open? You, you, you are you you like data. Are you open to arguments that rent control contributes to this? Paul Krugman, of all people, has written that it's obvious, obvious that rent control is what keeps the prices up and keeps housing up. I'm open to all arguments and I love I love evidence based discussions. And I think but there is an unpopular, or I think it's gaining in popularity, actually, a recognition that folks like Paul Krugman and the New York Times editorial page are coming to, which is that the underlying issue of rents is not that we aren't controlling them enough. The underlying issue is that there is not enough housing. We have built a million fewer units of housing in the last 50 years than we did in the 50 years before. And in the last 10 years, we built 100,000 units for 500,000 new people. We stopped building. We downzoned a lot of the city, said we can't build anything new here. And that is why we've relied so much on demand side issues of, of rent control and, and you know rental assistance to address the problem. But the problem but is that rents go up because there isn't enough housing. It's both. The, 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 um, the kind of Upper West Side liberals that I grew up around, they didn't want any new building ever. Like they, 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 they could snapshot in time. The year that I lived, this is the way it should stay. Right. So of course, but then, uh, then also what's true, I believe, is that people never leave these apartments. And you have uh, huge Upper West Side apartments with like two old ladies in them, you know, yeah. and, and, and this would be- you No, know, it's true. It's- yeah. it, it, Rent stabilization, it, it traps people where they are because it, why, how can they leave? How can they even they consider leaving? It's the only way they can survive. And so, but yeah, if we freeze the housing stock in Amber and say no new units, it really just reinforces the problem that people won't want to leave the stabilization. And then that reduces the number of units that are in the no, market it, and it drives up prices for everyone. Else. I, I want to alert the, 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 the listeners to the uh, option of Fort Lee, New Jersey. <laughs> I was just there yesterday. It's beautiful there. They got the beautiful buildings. You get a nice apartment with a view. You can't even imagine this view. You're on a cliff. You got the city before. But it's like sixteen hundred a month. You got a nice one bedroom. Problem is, there's not a lot going on in Fort Lee. My cousin <laughs> lived in Fort Lee. It's just it's like there's just uh, there's no like there's not a lot of culture. It's it's, it's, a, it's a commuter town. The biggest but it is problem cheap. is that you're in Fort Lee. Yes, that is. <laughs> well, but you know, you're right. But you can't have everything. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, not everybody can afford Manhattan and there's other options that are not so, far that are not too far away. Although I have to say, I grew up in Queens and spent my entire teenage life just trying to desperately claw my way out into Manhattan. Yeah, Perry, Al, can we just can I speak to everybody when I say when you say you grew up in Queens, we don't think you grew up in New York City. All right. Now, let me just read something I saw to say on the marginalrevolution.com, which is a, 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 a most popular economic site. So this is interesting. I hope it doesn't take too long to read. <coughs> so it's about rent control was studied in Oslo, Norway, and found that during the rent control era, it was common for landlords to require their tenants to be of a certain age, occupation, and even religion, which would be illegal in the United States. Landlords would also find ways to charge extra by asking renters for extra services, such as babysitting, garden work, or snow clearing. When rent control was eliminated, however, eliminated, however, the number of apartments increased 
and landlords no longer advertise these kinds of requirements. Perhaps most telling in the rent control era, it was common in the rent control era, pay attention, now, this is a good one. In the rent control era, it was common for renters, the landlords to advertise, I'm sorry, I fucked it up. In the rent control era, it was common for renters, that's tenants, the people renting. It was common for renters to advertise apartment wanted. But when rent controls were lifted, it became much more common for landlords to advertise apartments for rent. So this is good, presumably, and, and it, it, it links to um, the paper, the, the study where this is taken from. So this is good data to be open-minded to at least, you know. <laughs> I don't know that it's right, you know. Ryder likes fact-based. Yeah. I mean, I think right now the status quo is just really broken and, you know, there are a hundred people show up to every, you know, open house for a new rental and the landlords have all the power and that's because they have control of a very limited supply. And if there was more housing in the city, um, then any individual landlord would have much less of a, of a, you know, ability to squeeze every tenant you know they're also building in the bronx neck near the willis avenue have you seen all that shit near the willis avenue bridge no. it's like a whole new luxury building you know what i'm talking about right it it's like what used to be this was like the south bronx this used to be like the the war zone and they build all these luxury buildings right well what i started to say before noam cut me off was that it's incredible to me that people are now moving to queens i mean and it's beautiful. I mean, it happened in Brooklyn, you know, probably starting 25 years ago, right? That it was like nobody ever wanted to live in Brooklyn or Queens or the Bronx. You just wanted to live in Manhattan. I don't know. For me, I've never I, I mean, obviously living in Manhattan is great. But as a person, I, I literally Manhattan turns me off to living there purely because I have a car because like my dad lived in New York City on the Upper East Side for like 16 years. But he he had to, con you know, he did the, the car thing. He did a reverse commute out to Long Island. But to me, that was like, oh, I'll just live in Queens or Brooklyn, get it right into the city in right. three stops. And then I can actually have a car and I feel like I can breathe a little. And bit. did you grow up on the Upper East Side? No, no, we we grew up. In, I grew up on in Long Island. So I grew right up with like, space. How are, you, how are your polls looking? So there isn't really polling in a state assembly race like this. It's, you know, it's pretty small scale, but the metrics we have are, you know, who's raising more money. And I raised three times as much money as my opponent by the first public filing, who has yeah. the energy, you know, we have all these volunteers coming out to knock doors every weekend. And it's about the institutional support, getting the, you know, endorsements from the working families party and other folks who are on the more progressive side, but then also getting support from folks who care about housing density and public transit and restaurants and from folks in the queer community like the Jim Owls Club, which is, you know, the premier progressive LGBTQ Democratic Club. We have this coalition that spans all these different parts of uh, of the community. And the incumbent has, you know, a small subset of folks who hate outdoor dining and don't want new housing. Um, and I think they are not the majority of the district. Well, you let, let me know if, if afterwards if any way I can help you help you. I think I think you're terrific. I think you. I appreciate that. Uh, what I hear is that you're committing to max out to my campaign, make a $4,700 <laughs> individual donation. What's what's the max? $4,700. No, I can't commit to that. <laughs> <laughs> I had to try. My campaign manager would have. How's, how's two grand? Our two grand is great. It has to be personal or business is allowed. Personal. As he was, okay. I don't take corporate donations. And this is tax deductible when you donate to no, a candidate? No. <laughs> You're investing in a better future, a more affordable, equitable, and sustainable. And Noam doesn't even live in New York City, but oh well. Buddy, buddy, I, we're buddy, but his business is here. All right. Yeah. Am I, am I, so you're really are you, am I allowed to donate if I don't live in the city? Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. You have my commitment. You tell I appreciate you it. Your, okay. Your, so uh, I'd like iPad. a pin. What? I'd I, like a pin. Let me see if I I'll take. I'll, I'll take a t-shirt if you have one. I just need t-shirts for the gym, <laughs> and to show my to show my support, but also because I need t-shirts. I'll come back with a swag bag for everyone. <laughs> um, should we wrap it no, up? Yeah, now? I, I really am. I mean, I'm really corny, but I, I really am. I'm really am. Um, uh, pleased to meet you and to hear somebody who's not just on autopilot saying, you know, cliche, blah 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 blah. Who's young and, and wants to get involved with city politics that's that's terrific i mean thank you and noam you said you would i'll be open to a fundraiser for rider here at the club i believe you uh, said I'd, that be I'd be happy to do that yeah well, well you we'll guys you can talk about a possible fundraiser wow and uh Ryder, i don't know if you know anything about comedy but are there any comedians you would like at your fundraiser um <laughs> uh, i mean my favorite comedian is maria bamford do you think yeah, you we get her works here you know i mean for the right price you get anybody yeah yeah you know for 100k you, you get seinfeld yeah. to 10 minutes but... i know I, you know I don't want to alienate anyone. I really, it's generally women and gay men who are the comedic sensibilities. Mateo Lane, to. Jessica Kirsten will put together a hell of a- Oh, we could, we certainly, we got, and we got, we got, uh, you know, we're very uh, diverse here, despite what some of the, in the media have said about the comedy seller. We got everything here. Great. This might be the most diverse club that I work. I'm just from like a person who works in a lot of other clubs. And, and that's not by design, like we want to be diverse. That's no. by picking the funny people and you pick the funny people and we happen to just it so happens that it winds up being diverse. No, would you agree with that? Diversity, but you would argue elsewhere. Diversity is a beautiful outcome of the human race. It, it when when um, when it's allowed to happen naturally, it, it can be. I, I don't I don't like it when it's um, we talk about this. I don't like it when it's imposed because it leads to a lot of, I think, animosity between people and a lot of uh, um, people looking at each other like, well, the only reason you got this job was because you're this. The only reason you got this job because of that. But in the comedy cellar where we, I think you're right. I think that, and my goodness, if you look at the lineups now, um, it's extremely diverse <coughs> and nobody suspects that they're there for any other reason than they're in the top 1% of funny comedians in this in the country and that's why they belong at the comedy cellar and that that leads to a wonderful atmosphere i think great you anyway with so that, Feeny? i agree yeah 100% yeah Feeny's you don't have many straight white men anymore you got you well, guys are and that's kind of the, been the product of it right which is i mean this is a whole other conversation but like you know stand up comedy traditionally forever was a straight white male or and it's still it. i mean if you look if you take every comedian in america it's about 95% straight white people and that's its own argument as to why that is or something. But that also, you know, it's proportionate, I think. I feel like this, this, the lineups here are more proportionate than there are, you know, how many. I, I think comedy has been diverse for a while. It, and certainly, uh, certainly when you compare it to other industries, even in the 70s, was more diverse than, say, big oil. I, I have to admit that I had a little, um, not a change of heart, but. I had to rethink uh, something when I found out that Zarna Garg, who I don't know if you, you know who she is, Ryder. No, she's this right. um, Indian um, comic. She's a she's a mom, and I think she was an attorney, and she's kind of like almost like an Indian Roseanne Barr in a way, right? It's like she talks mm -hmm. about being a, oh, a, a wife. She has the accent. Thing. She's from the old country. Yeah. yeah, and and she's fantastic. I mean, she is killing. I mean, the, the audience. We get emails about her every day. Audience just love. They 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 can't get enough of her. She gets more spots, I think, than than anybody. And yet, she tells me that the other clubs are not really booking her that much. 
And uh, that throws me for a loop, you know, like, I, I mean, um, I, I don't say that the reason they're doing it is because they have any kind of racial animosity, God forbid, I, I, I say that that is definitely not the reason, but maybe it's just this kind of like people having trouble appreciating people other than themselves and they just go with what they're calling, what they know in some way. I don't know. I mean, like what club wouldn't be booking this woman? Like the, she goes, the audience goes crazy for her. I think there's anyway. a misconception. I mean, I'm the one in, not in this industry, but um, you know, that maybe stories like hers or jokes like hers aren't universal that, and I think there's a misconception that, you know, the straight white male experience is the universal experience, but um the specificity of everyone's experience is what resonates and you know yeah i think watching Almost every John's experience is universal i think that's part of what makes yeah. nice about diversity right when we have we have gay comics even when they're doing very the same kind of gay material that they would do in a gay club uh it's still universal somehow because relationships right. are relationships and, exactly. and insecurities are insecurities and, and you know i I, I, yeah. I haven't seen any evidence that the white straight audience laughed less hard at a gay comic. I haven't seen that at all. Have you seen that, Feeny? I haven't seen that. You know, and I also think it's also like the reverse where, you know, I had always said, like, if I could fill up a theater with middle aged black women, that would be my ideal crowd, because I don't for whatever reason, they maybe it's I'm like a novelty or whatever it is, but they're they're them hearing my experience makes them really tickled, you know, <laughs> really. So it's like, but you wouldn't think that right away, you know? Yeah. Well, I yeah, don't see I, uh, you filling up theaters with all black women. <laughs> I'll take I'll but take there a, might be a smattering. Let me fill up clubs. For, that would be nice. Right. To, you know. I guess we got to go. OK, uh, so let uh, me. Uh, Perry, will you give him my email so we can give it to his uh, campaign manager? Whoever it is, yes, I would also like to say that we've been trying to book Ryder since that article came out in December. And we have rebooked. I mean, I'm telling you as the person who books this show that it is incredibly unusual for us to cancel and rebook any guest. And we all owe Ryder an apology because we have rebooked him, I think, five times. Wow. I have difficulty apologizing. I don't. I, <laughs> well, first I of all, it's just a, admit wrongdoing very, very with great difficulty. It's first proof of, all, of my tenacity you, and my commitment to my constituents. Uh, no, but it's all the what three do you mean? What do you mean we? Well, it's actually been your fault if you really want me to get into it. And I have the written evidence of every email. Um, I think twice, mm. once you were sick, <laughs> once you were sick, once you were out of the country and right, once right. you um, had that, uh, you you had a gig <laughs> that you had been booked for. But anyway, I didn't want you to come in when Noam wasn't here because he was so excited to have you on and to meet you. And then today. He got COVID. He said he can't come in. I said, I'm absolutely I don't care. There's no way we're rescheduling this. So no, he was I, supposed I to, be... to reschedule. No, you didn't. But I wanted you to be in here for when Ryder was here. Anyway, oh, no, I, well, I've been we... wanting to meet him. I, I thought that I was really impressed by that article about the, the restaurant just to hear somebody, you know, well, I don't want to say it again, but just to hear somebody like open to things because, you know, the community boards for a long time have been trying to take away every last outdoor table. Mm hmm. Uh, well, we I think we had a full show. We didn't get to the duty in the bed from Amber Heard, <laughs> but perhaps next week. Thank you, Mike Feeney, for joining us. And, you know, I got a weird feeling Mike Feeney in a couple of years. We won't be able to get him on the show. It happened. It's happened. Pete Davidson was on the show. Trevor Noah was on the show. Wow. It, I mean, years ago. 
Yeah. Now we would they they wouldn't come on. But Ronnie Chang we had on. He we might he might come back. He said he will come on. Ronnie will definitely come on. Ronnie will come on. Ronnie's one of the nicest people of all time. In 2017, when I first was asking him advice about how to work this club, he gave me he gave me very terrific, very thoughtful advice. He is a sweet man. I think Pete Davidson would do it. Well, we can ask Pete. We can ask Pete. But I, I don't Judd did it recently. What are you talking about? I'm saying yes, but but others have not. There's there's some people that we used to have on that we would be harder to get. That's for sure. And I'm worried that we're going to lose Feeney. <laughs> I, I, I promise I won't. I won't. And we leave. might lose Ryder when he's living in Gracie Mansion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, promise exactly. us, Ryder, if you're the mayor, <laughs> you'll at least answer our email. I'm never moving north of 23rd Street. OK, All right. Ryder Kessler is running for New York City Assembly. So we don't we don't endorse candidates on the show, but Yes, we do. Oh, we do. I'm endorsing him. Oh, they, can, <laughs> they can learn more about me at riderfornewyork.com. Riderfornewyork.com. Ride or die. <laughs> Ride or die. That's a good one. Ride Merch to come. Uh, and Perry L. Ashenbrand, our producer and on air. I mean, I don't know what you call her. She's like uh, second auxiliary host. And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Nicole Lyons, the best sound person in the business. This Perry. woman is a wizard. Ariel, can you check the lineups and see if there's any gay comics that Ryder might like before he leaves? Maybe he wants to go down and see Mateo or something. Ryder, like. of course, is invited to see the show. Also, food half off. Ryder, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time. This show. Good night. Good night.